You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good afternoon, everybody. So this talk is, I guess, in some ways kind of a sequel or kind of like talk, you know, 1A. Um, I, I did a session last year, at some point maybe some of you were there, where I talked about uh, Judaism confronting 21st century challenges through a 21st century lens. Uh, and I, I find that sometimes, depending on where I go, uh, if I'm in a crowd that's younger than me, I don't have as much of a unique perspective, but when I'm in a crowd of people who, uh, who skew a little bit older than me, um, I, I find that in some ways I have a unique perspective because um, I am a, uh, a, a rabbi of the millennial generation. I'm probably uh, the first rabbi many of you have met in the millennial generation. Uh, and I find in, in you know, reading the popular literature and the popular media um, that there's a lot of uh, um, uh, uncertainty and confusion um, uh, in the uh, established adult generations, meaning from the greatest generation through the boomers and Gen X, um, about the millennial generation, uh, but the millennial generation is now uh, the newest generation entering the workforce. It's going to be a dominant feature in uh, in American world life uh, for for a long time to come, uh, and uh, and so I think that there's a lot of uh, um, uh, questions and uh, and uncertainty uh, in the established adult generations about what it is the millennial generation is all about and what we stand for. Uh, if we could say that we as a collective stand for anything. I'm not sure we, we as a collective do, just like any collective body doesn't really necessarily stand for anything. Do the boomers stand for anything? Do the uh, greatest generation stand for anything in particular? Um, but I do think that there are certain issues and certain areas that, uh, that in large part, uh, my fellow millennials and I um, see as uh, pressing critical uh, Local, national, and global challenges um, that uh, that that influence a lot of uh, aspects of of our life, our work life, our social life, uh, our political leanings, um, and, uh, and and uh, and 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 even our uh, religious leanings. Um, so, in that talk that I did, uh, whatever it was, a year ago, a few months ago, I I, I talked about some of those things. Um, that if you look at the data, if you look at the polling numbers on where millennials stand on, on any number of issues, um, these are very clearly what exactly we do about those issues. Um, that's where you'll get the new political and religious and ideological fault lines in the coming generations. Um, that, that's the that's the partisan, you know, the response to these issues. But the issues themselves, these are no longer really, among millennials at least, matters of, of debate, right? So among them are, um, are uh, these are the ones I'm not going to really be addressing today, um, uh, equality for uh, gays, lesbians, uh, transgendered individuals, and, uh, and bisexuals, and also those who are uh, questioning their gender or sexual identity. Um, that's a matter of settled conversation, more or less, among millennials. Question, of course, that is, okay, well, how, how does society best uh, um, uh, enable, create conditions for equality among uh, those people? How do we seed uh, conditions for equality among the GLBT community in, uh, in other countries outside of America where GLBT issues are, uh, are, are much further behind, uh, especially in the developing world? Um, so that's where the political divide will come, but not on the question of whether it's okay to be gay or lesbian, whether it's whether a gay uh, whether a gay couple or a lesbian couple should be able to get married, whether uh, whether we should make accommodations in our society for transgender, etc. Right? That those are really kind of settled matters uh, for the millennial generation. Uh, another area, this is another one we're not really going to talk about, is uh, um, uh, income inequality. Uh, or uh, financial inequality, um, and this is one also that, at least in terms of the facts of it, um, is pretty uh, settled among the millennial generation. The millennial generation uh, uh, sees uh, the deepening inequality and takes as fact the deepening inequality in America, and, and uh, that's uh, uh, good social science, not just among millennials, uh, shows that to be true. There's really, for if you haven't read it yet, um, a really extraordinary book that came out 
last spring uh, called Our Kids by a Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam, uh, who's written a whole bunch of really influential books uh, recently. Um, and Our Kids uh, tracks uh, um, inequality in all different features from uh, the 1950s until today and uh, really creates a devastating portrait of the unraveling of uh, the social fabric of, uh, of America in really um, problematic ways. Now, what exactly we do about that inequality, that will be the political divide, um, even among the millennial generation, but the question of whether or not there's inequality, that's a settled issue. And the major one, the one that Amanda invited me to, uh, to come and talk about today that I, that I alluded to in that talk was the issue of climate change. If you look at the polling data, especially among, uh, younger individuals, uh, and by that I mean, you know, Gen Xers, Millennials, and, and people, uh, younger than, than us, um, it is, uh, widely, uh, accepted as fact that, uh, that, uh, our planet is getting warmer, uh, and that is causing all sorts of uh, not only environmental problems, but human problems, um, and it is a, uh, a growing threat um, on a number of different levels that, uh, that, that I, getting older, my kids are going to have to face, um, and maybe, if nothing is done about it, then, um, then there may not be a habitable planet for our children or grandchildren at all. So exactly what to do about climate change, um, that will be the political fault line um, um, among millennials, I think. Uh, but whether or not there is a problem of global climate change, that's something um, uh, about which there is uh, very little disagreement among my generation. Um, so that was the talk last time. And uh, Amanda invited me to talk a little bit more this time about, um, about climate change. Uh, and about what the Jewish response or the Jewish view on it would be. Um, okay, so I gotta lay my political cards on the table and, and, and it's, uh, um, uh, a little bit striking that this is a political, to me at least, and I think to members of the millennial generation, that this is a political question in our time about A, whether there is global warming at all, and B, whether, uh, humanity has a role in making the planet warmer. Uh, and I guess C is whether there's anything we can do about it. Um, those don't strike me, all three of those things don't strike me as, um, as actual real world questions. Um, and, and I, and I assembled a, a list of, uh, of, of, uh, facts here. Now, of course, it, one could easily say these are my opinion about what constitute facts about, uh, global warming, about climate change. Um, and, uh, and, and you can say that and we can have a conversation, uh, about that. Uh, but I think that the uh, science is pretty well resolved on the issues that I'm uh, that, that I have listed here as facts, um, and uh, and 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 I think on those three issues, whether there is global climate change, whether it's uh, largely result of uh, man-made causes, and whether uh, we can have a role in um, in in turning it around or in mitigating its negative effects. Um, that is, uh, that, that's, those are the real questions. Okay. So just to lay out at the onset some of these, uh, facts, and I tried to find as unimpeachable, uh, facts as I could about, uh, global climate change. I'll start with number nine, um, which is that 97% of climate scientists agree that climate warming trends over the past century are very likely due to human activities. All right, so that's only 97% that, uh, that, that agree. So there may be 3% that don't agree with the, the second thing that I said, that, that hum, human beings are responsible for global warming. Um, but more than 97% agree that there is global warming. Okay, so, which also means that number three is still in play, even for those 3% who uh, don't agree that number two is the case. But 97% of, uh, of, uh, of climate scientists is a pretty unimpeachable figure, um, uh, and, uh, and, and even more than that, the leading scientific organizations worldwide have issued public statements endorsing this position, right? Um, so there is, like there always is in scientific study, uh, likely to, there, 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 there are virtually no issues in science where there isn't a, uh, where there isn't a small minority that, that disputes the claims of the vast majority, um, and sometimes it's even more hairy, but we also, uh, tend to accept uh, uh, issues that are, have even less 
unanimity than this one, um, but that's a pretty solid block of, uh, of, of scientists who agree not only that global warming is happening, but that human beings are the cause of it. All right, so let's back up to number one. Um, number one, carbon dioxide, a byproduct of fossil fuel combustion, is a greenhouse gas which traps solar radiation in the atmosphere. All right, I want to pause here. Um, so Pope Francis just recently uh, issued an encyclical, a, a, a papal uh, essay about uh, global climate change and what uh, he believes that the Catholic community and the world community ought to do about it. And uh, a, a presidential candidate uh, whose party I won't divulge and the name of whom I won't divulge uh, said, you know, I believe that, uh, that Pope Francis should stick to religion and let scientists discuss the science. Now, the problem with that statement, of course, is that the scientists have weighed in on the science, and two, that Pope Francis is actually a scientist. So, um, you know, I am neither, I am not a scientist, and I'm not the Pope, right? So I'm relying on other scientists for, for this data. Um, and, uh, and I um, know that there are people who know the science better than I do, uh, even in this room, some of whom are students of the people who know the science better than I do. Um, but uh, anyway, carbon dioxide, a byproduct of fossil fuel combustion, is a greenhouse gas which traps solar radiation in the atmosphere, right? Um, so that means every, everything from the, uh, the emission from our cars to the emission of the trucks on the highway to the emissions of our power plants and production plants, uh, right? These all produce, if they burn fossil fuels, right, gasoline, coal, things like that, if they burn fossil fuels, they release uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that trap solar radiation, um, and just like when you leave your car windows open, I mean, when you leave your car windows closed on a hot day, and it traps solar radiation in your car, your car gets hotter, right? The same thing is true of the Earth. When greenhouse gases trap solar radiation, the Earth gets hotter. Increased human fossil fuel com consumption over the past two centuries has increased levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, again, this really strikes me as a no-brainer, right? Uh, if we know that, that fossil fuel uh, um, emissions create our greenhouse gases that trap solar radiation, um, you only need to have like a D minus in history to know that we really only started burning those fossil fuels uh, in, the, uh, in the 19th century. Um, in the Industrial Revolution and then the advent of the automobile uh, and uh, uh, and then of course in the, the growing industrialization of society uh, and so you can easily see the tracking of how much fo how many fossil fuel how much fossil fuels we burn since the 1800s um, uh, uh, until today um, so that should be obvious. So it, it should be a, uh, an obvious corollary that if we're burning a lot more fossil fuels than we ever had before in human history, uh, and fossil fuel uh, emissions create greenhouse gases. The more you emit, the more greenhouse gases there are, the more solar radiation gets trapped, the hotter the planet's going to be, right? Atmospheric uh, carbon dioxide recently surpassed 400 parts per million, the highest level in more than 800,000 years. As a result of increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide, global surface temperatures have increased by about one degree Celsius since 1880. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. That's average temperatures. That's average surface temperatures, right? Um, so over the course of uh, uh, 130 years, um, uh, to increase by one degree Celsius is actually a, a, a substantial increase. It marks um, major increases, especially in the hottest areas, but even in the coldest areas in, in the world. Most of this warming has occurred since the 1970s, right? So, um, so we're talking about a span of 130 years, but really uh, we're talking about a span of, of 40 years uh, where most of the warming has happened, with the 20 warmest years having occurred since 1981, and with all 10 of the warmest years occurring in the past 12 years. Even though the 2000s witnessed a solar output decline resulting in an unusually deep solar minimum in 2007 to 2009, surface temperatures continue to increase, right? So that's, yes. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, <coughs> Right, so uh, so solar output decline means that the that the sun during those years was comparatively releasing less radiation than it usually does, right? So even though the sun, no, they don't. I mean, they might know why, but I didn't look that up. Uh, <laughs> um, 
I, I think that that uh, that that uh, could be. Th so th uh, those no. So those were years where it was not warming as much. Um, uh, the the solar output declined, but the planet continued to get hotter. Right. In other words, those may not have been the hottest years on record. So it may have uh, bucked the trend of having you know every year of the last twelve years uh, be or over the last decade be the hottest year on record. It may not have been the hottest year on record, but if you compare it out um, between, uh, um, is, does it follow the general trajectory? Of, uh, of increasing temperatures, yes, it does. Even in those years, even when uh, solar output was was uh, on the wane in those two years or three years, whatever it was. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a I'm not a, an astrophysicist, like I'm not exactly sure, but I I, it, I, I don't think it has anything to do with. Um, uh, with, with what's happening on the planet, I think it has to do with with uh, um, with the the actual combustion of the sun and the radiation it emits and, and all that. Um, all I know about the sun is that it's hot. Okay. Uh, um, so, 2014, last year was the warmest year ever recorded, and 2015 will likely be even warmer. The number of record high temperature events in the United States has been increasing while the number of record low temperature events has been decreasing since 1950. The U.S. has also witnessed increasing numbers of intense rainfall events. Okay, so there might be debate about whether or not that's linked to this larger phenomenon of global climate change, although it's probably, it is probably linked. The oceans have absorbed much of this increased heat with the top 700 meters of ocean showing warming of 0.302 degrees Fahrenheit since 1969. Uh, and that is uh, problematic on a number of levels. It's problematic for um, uh, ocean species um, of life um, um, who you know, depend on the ocean being a certain temperature in order to live and survive, so you have uh, um, Bleaching of coral reefs because of that, destruction of ocean habitats, uh, uh, um, threats to uh, certain species, uh, and then the next piece, uh, which you'll see, uh, is that it impacts um, ar Arctic ice. Right. So when the ocean gets warmer and the atmosphere gets hotter, uh, Arctic ice and glaciers, glaciers around the world have shrunk markedly in recent decades. Um, and that, I mean, that's visible. Um, you know, it's, it's visible uh, in uh, glacier levels on mountains. Um, there's that famous uh, picture that uh, Al Gore had in the documentary in, in Inconvenient Truth of Mount Kilimanjaro in, I think, like the 1950s and Mount Kilimanjaro today. Uh, and the glacier levels is, it's just striking, um, the difference. Um, and, um, and you can see it in Arctic ice and things like that. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, that's shrunk. And when that happens, um, sea levels rise. So sea levels have risen 6.7 inches over the past century as a result of human induced global warming. This sea level rise, which is accelerating, makes coastal storms more destructive. It also makes flooding more, uh, uh, possible, we'll see number 11, we we'll, might as well just look at it now, that climate change will hit poor countries, especially those in the global south, hardest. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's, I mean, what I'm about to say is not a global warming statement necessarily, um, but it's a related statement to global warming. So what you saw in New Orleans in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, uh, where the people most directly impact, impacted by the storm uh, and, uh, and and hardest hit by the storm were the poorest people in uh, in New Orleans uh, and the most disadvantaged people in New Orleans. Uh, the the intensity of Katrina is a matter of debate whether or not it's related to global warming, but the phenomenon of when sea levels rise and storms increase in intensity uh, due to global warming and therefore uh, make uh, sea levels uh, uh, impact coastal regions. Uh, especially in the global south where people tend to be poorer, the same phenomenon will increasingly happen, right? So new storms, new 
hurricanes, new tsunamis that are related to global warming in areas where sea levels are already rising, already threatening flooding, uh, will impact those areas uh, um, disproportionately hard than, say, you know, uh, uh, wealthy and affluent areas of coastal regions in the United States. Um, you know, like Malibu might be impacted by global warming. Uh, you know, it might get hit by a storm, but it won't be as catastrophic or devastating to the people of Malibu because they'll have the financial capacity to recover from it. Right. Whereas if it happens in Malaysia, uh, or Burma or, uh, or Malaysia and Burma are the same thing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Myanmar and Burma are the same thing. Uh, if it happens in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, uh, Vietnam or Cambodia or, or one of these areas, uh, um, the recovery will be much more uh, difficult, much more devastating in those areas. Reason, number eight, reasonable extrapolations from current, by the way, that, that last piece, number, not, number 11, which I, I linked to number uh, seven, um, is not an ancillary point from the Jewish point of view. Um, that may be one of the most critical points from the Jewish point of view, as it was uh, from the point of view of Pope Francis and his encyclical. Uh, his uh, ultimate point, um, or, or one of his major points, was not so much about the responsibility to uh, to, to care for the planet as a, as an as a you know as an environment as a natural entity, although that's a piece of it. Um, his concern was primarily how uh, poor countries and poor people will be disproportionately impacted by the effects of global climate change, and that he sees as the moral crisis. Uh, <clears throat> okay, number eight, reasonable extrapolations from current trends suggest that unchecked fossil fuel consumption will increase the risk of coastal flooding, droughts, severe storms, heat waves, food and water shortages, and other harmful effects. Um, right, so that's a related point to, to what we were talking about uh, just a moment ago. And you can see that already happening in, uh, in some areas. I mean, uh, uh, California is a difficult place to live right now. Um, of course, if you're wealthy in California, it's not as difficult a place to live. But if you are not wealthy in California, it's a much more difficult place to live. 97% of climate, we already did this one, all right, so we'll skip that one. Number 10, the United States, historically, has been the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide and hence bears the greatest responsibility for climate change, right? So that doesn't necessarily, yes. China is competing with us on that, but China at the moment is not as big an emitter of, uh, of fossil fuels as the United States and historically has not been as big an emitter of, China has, didn't industrialize until, uh, until beginning of the late 70s, right? So, uh, so it has a lot of catching up to do in, uh, uh, in, when it competes with American industry, um, which means that China is industrializing fast, it's becoming a dirty emitter fast, but it's not as big an emitter as the United States. Um, and so, uh, and so when, when, when it says here that we have the greatest responsibility for climate change, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, I mean, it might mean, but I'm not, that's not the statement I'm making, a moral responsibility to deal with climate change. It's just that we are the most responsible for contributing to it, right? So we've done the most to create the conditions for this. That, um, that, that's, that's true regardless of how fast China is industrializing. Um, I, 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 so I, I So what I'll say about that um, uh, is that as far as I'm aware, um, even with those images and even with those pictures and as, and as uh, um, dirty as uh, China's uh, consumption is of fossil fuels, uh, America, I think, still is outpacing China uh, in its emission of fossil fuels. Um, uh, that, that's for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is um, that, um, that while... Uh, a lot of China is industrializing. There's still a lot of China, more of China than is true in the United States, is still rural. Um, and, uh, and so its cities are clogged and congested and, and, and dirty. Um, but there are lots of areas of China where that's not the case. Um, so, uh, so those pictures can be misleading. Um, but I'm, I, I mean, I have to go back and check. 
that I'm pretty sure that even today the U.S. is still a bigger emitter of fossil fuels than a bigger consumer of fossil fuels than China is. I'm not saying that they're false because global climate change is a global issue and it has, right, if, 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 if the U.S. stopped all of its uh, uh, fossil fuel, fuel consumption tomorrow, it would still be a problem, right? So, no, in which paper? Uh-huh. So uh, I, I don't want to wade into the political conversation about this because what exactly we do and how we address the issues um, is, uh, is, is a touchy political subject precisely for the reasons that you're talking about. Uh, I, I, I agree that, um, that this is a global issue and is not going to be meaningfully dealt with unless the global community comes together to address it. On the other hand, uh, uh, it, 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 is, it also strikes me as true, although um, I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly qualified to, um, to, to uh, talk about it with real authority, that, um, that you know, for a major emitter like the United States to uh, reduce its consumption and emissions uh, would, have, would have an impact. Now, whether if Virginia, as Virginia does it, uh, will it have an impact? Maybe not, but I guess one of the questions that I would ask is, you know, part of, one of the ways that our, you know, sort of federalist system works is that, uh, that when, when there's a groundswell of activity on the more local level, there begins to be uh, a greater push for, uh, for, you know, federal overhauls. Um, you know, I mean, that happened with healthcare reform. Right? The states were doing things on their own, uh, Massachusetts most notably, right? And, uh, and the federal government took its example of what it could do for the country um, based on those models. So I mean, that's why they call the states the laboratories of democracy, right? Um, so I, I don't know the specifics of what the governor has proposed and whether or not they're, uh, they're good or effective. Um, and whether or not in the end it would hurt Virginia uh, at the expense, of, you know, uh, and, and not really have enough of an impact on the real issue to, um, to, uh, um, uh, to justify hurting uh, Virginians. Um, but uh, but, but it's, it's possible that it would, right? It's possible, or at least it's possible that it would um, create a model that is replicable elsewhere. So... Um, so that's so. so it's a, yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's, and it's a challenge, right? So, and that's that's uh, um, an area that we'll talk about when we talk about the Jewish view of of this, okay? Because right, these are just the, um, the 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 facts of the issue, but not necessarily what ought to be done about it. Um, and almost none of these are really moral questions, um, right? Because one could just as easily say, okay, fine, you know, the world is getting hot, the planet's getting hotter. Um, as long as I have my iPhone, I don't really care how, how hot the planet's getting. Um, you know, let that be, the, the heat of the planet is going to be my children's problem, my grandchildren's problem, uh, and it's not my problem, right? So th there is, I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to, um, What's the word I'm looking for? I'm not trying to um, trivialize that moral argument because I think it's a plausible one. You can say, okay, the world's getting hotter. That's other people's problem, not mine. 
Uh, and, uh, and, and we're not sure exactly how it's going to play out. Or, or you know, poor countries are not my problem, right? All that, all that's true. Or, you know, uh, I don't want the world to get hotter, I, I, you know, but I also need a job, right? And I have a job in the, in an industry that burns fossil fuels. So, so these are complex moral issues, which is, I'm gonna say something really political right now, um, uh, uh, which is I think why uh, there's a certain segment within our political leadership that wants to deny that this is an issue at all because when you start really having to navigate those complex moral questions, it's much, it makes for much worse tweets and much harder sound bites, uh, uh, than, um, than this is just not an issue. We don't need to worry about it. Yeah. There, there are, so that's a, that's a, that's a question of debate, as I understand in the scientific community. There are some scientists who say it's already too late. Uh, and there are others that say, you know, uh, you know, I remember when, um, an inconvenient truth came out, uh, you know, either it was something that was expressed in that movie or in the conversation surrounding it, that it was something like a decade, I think it's been a decade since an inconvenient truth came out. Uh, I, from what I understand, most, uh, most of the scientific community says that it's still not too late to do something about this. Um, we, you know, fortunately, um, we have a resilient planet, um, which uh, th there's truth to this that, um, you know, even if we make the planet unfit for human habitation, which is the most likely result of climate change taken to its nat natural uh, conclusion is that... Um, is that the planet will still be here, it'll still be orbiting the sun, we just may not be. Um, and that means, I think, over time, the planet will resuscitate itself, uh, but we just won't be here to see that resuscitation, right? So, um, uh, so the, the, the truth is no one really knows uh, at what point is, is um, we're, we're, the, we're past the point of no return, but it's probably a long time where we're beyond the point of no return. It just may mean that as we're working to mitigate the impacts of climate change and to turn the tide, we're still going to continue seeing some of the negative impacts because um, it's going to just take longer to back up the, back up the boat. Um, it's a good analogy. I mean, I think that the problem with the analogy is that uh, um, smoking uh, uh, impacts the individual smoker, right, and, um, and, and creates conditions that are likely for that individual smoker uh, to become sick or to die as a result of smoking. Climate change isn't quite like that, right? So just because I drive a... Uh, what was that car? A Hummer. Just because I drive a Hummer, right, doesn't mean that I'm going to live to see the planet get too hot to live in, right? So it's a, so the, 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 the distance between my cause and the effect is much bigger. Like I don't, you know, I, I like swimming in a warm ocean. Like what does it matter to me, you know? Uh, so that's part of the, part of the problem. I mean, one of the, one of the, um, lessons that I think we can learn from the campaign against smoking is that over the course of time, um, it became much more socially taboo to smoke, not only because of the personal uh, health issues, but because of the uh, impact it had on collective secondhand smoke and things like that. Um, and I think that that's something that we could do when, when it came to uh, uh, climate change, although that, um, uh, that that's a harder thing to do, right? It's easy to get actors to, you know, say, I'm not going to smoke in a movie, right? Um, if you can't drive in a movie anymore and you can't use uh, the products of industry in a movie anymore, and you, I mean, just like, it, you know, it becomes harder to create a taboo around it. Um, yeah. Right. Right. And so you have all these people right now, poor people, abused 
I mean, it's but maybe it's and maybe it's both, right? It's it can be it can it can legitimately be both, right? Um, you know that uh, that 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 Virginia is an energy producing state. You know, places like Pennsylvania, right? These are energy producing. So the so the jobs issue is a major issue. Right? We, uh, it is an issue, and and so I don't need I don't think it, I don't think it needs to be either or because both of those are moral dimensions of the of the conversation. Some countries do fossil fuels cleaner than we do, possibly. Uh, so that is one possible solution that, that people have, uh, have raised. I mean, um, uh, you know, the, it, you raise a really important point, which is you have kind of a catch-22 here. On the one hand, um, to, uh, to, to, to switch to technologies um, uh, that uh, make... Uh, that, that are cleaner energy uh, might make the cost of energy more expensive, which negatively impacts the poor. Uh, on the other hand, uh, not switching to those technologies creates uh, global conditions that negatively impact the poor, right? So the question is, like, do you want to hurt the poor now or later? Uh, and, uh, and, and, but there might be, uh, with, with, with creativity and people with more knowledge than I do, uh, ways to, um, to, uh, stem the negative impacts of climate change, change the nature of our energy consumption, um, both in ways that uh, that hurt the poor less now and then, although it might hurt the wealthy more now, right? So that's one of the possible trade-offs, um, and uh, and a lot of wealthy people don't really like that the possibility of that trade-off. Um, you know, there, there one of my uh, my my teacher, my mentor, Rabbi Brad Artson, um, said to me when I was uh, he met with Adira and I when we were um, like preparing for our marriage, and um, and he said to us the the one of the pieces of advice that stuck, stuck with me most of my life, and it's got so many applications. He said, "You can have anything, but you can't have everything." Right. So uh, so this is an, an area where that's true. Right. Um, you you can have. You know, any product, good lifestyle that you want, right? But you might also not be able to ensure the planet exists for your grandchildren, right? So, uh, or, or you can have, you can have any kind of, uh, um, uh, technology to enable a healthier planet, uh, but you may also not be able to, uh, um, have the same kind of standard of living that you would, right? There, you can have anything, but you can't have everything, right? So right now, the calculus that we make is we can have all of the products we want at the prices we want at, in the, at the convenience we want them. Um, but the everything that we can't have is, um, a planet that will be habitable for our, for our great grandchildren. Um, and certainly not habitable for, uh, for the great grandchildren people in the global south, uh, which will impact us when they start migrating away from where they're living now, right? As you're seeing, uh, and it's not related to climate change necessarily, but as you're seeing in Syria, right? What happens when a, when, when there's a, a multi-million uh, person mass uh, migration from a place because it's not a fit place to live anymore, right? What does that do to the uh, surrounding region? And how do you grapple with those issues, right? That's happening because of a war, uh, but it could very likely, although not inevitably, but it could very likely happen because of uh, flooding. You know, if uh, if if uh, Myanmar ceases to exist because it's submerged in water, where are all those people going to go? Right. So, okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit. So these are some of the questions. And I'm glad that you're raising them, right? And these are not easy questions. And so my goal today is not to say, okay, well, Judaism says this is the policy we should adopt, right? Um, I think that Judaism as a whole, says that this is an issue that, that, that demands our attention, and I'll tell you why, what exactly we should do about it is, is a matter, I think, of debate. But I, what, what I want to say is that there are, I think, really three, there are really three ways that historically people have looked at the relationship between human beings and the world. One I'll call the, um, uh, the mechanistic view, okay? 
um, which is which has its roots in Greek Stoicism, but was also probably the view of many of America's founding fathers um, because they were you know rationalists and deists um, uh, into the the philosophies that reigned during the Industrial Revolution. And uh, the mechanistic view basically says the Earth is a dead machine, right? There are the the uh, and and human beings are at the pinnacle of, uh, of creation, the top of the evolutionary ladder. Uh, and so that means that we have a moral right to use the earth, to mine the earth for whatever resources we need to make our life um, as, uh, as, as good as it possibly can. There is no moral good higher than uh, human betterment. Um, so that's one view. The second view, that's, and, and I'd say that that's largely the view, uh, that, uh, that, that we've operated on for the last hundred years or so, hundred, fifty years. The second view, um, I would call the, uh, the Gaia-centric view. You guys have heard of Gaia? Gaia is the, uh, the philosophy, the, the notion that the Earth is actually, as a whole, is a living organism. Uh, and that, um, as a, as a whole, it is, uh, greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and human beings are a part of that ecosystem or a part of that whole, which means um, human good is subservient to planetary good, right? Which may mean that human beings can utilize the resources of the earth, but not in any way that harms or negatively impacts the earth. Uh, okay, so there are problems with both of those views. The problem with the mechanistic view is that it's a really limited notion of self-interest, right? Because, uh, okay, I can mine the earth, it's a dead machine, I can mine it for all of its resources and make my life really great. Uh, eventually, the earth is going to run out of resources because it's a closed system, uh, and then what? Uh, and really, I mean, this is the, uh, in large part, the view um, of most of the world today, including the United States, um, where... You know, I'm getting everything I want from the earth and that's great and human beings are more important than any other species, any other thing or living thing in the earth. Um, so I might have secondary concern for other things, but not at the expense of, uh, of, of my own life and well-being. Um, but it's a limited notion of self-interest because eventually the earth's going to run out of resources. It's not going to be fit for habitation, right? You're going to run out of water. You're going to run out of air, clean air, etc. The Gaia-centric view, on the other hand, is also problematic. Um, because, first of all, it's philosophically problematic, because I, as a human being, am the one who devised this rational system in which the, uh, the, the earth is of greater uh, importance than human beings, but how can the earth be of greater importance than human beings if I'm the one who devised a system that says it's greater than human beings? Obviously, that means that on some level, my consciousness um, is, uh, is, is, is uh, of a higher plane than the earth's itself. Um, so it, it, it doesn't really hold philosophical muster, um, but it also, I think, is, uh, is uh, uh, it, it's only valid if you think that human life is uh, less important than, uh, than other species and other creatures, right? Which I think that most of us probably don't think that. Um, you know, if, given the choice, be, you know, if someone's got a gun pointed at me or my dog Fluffy, right, um, and it says, one of you's got to go, uh, I don't know about you, but I would probably choose myself. I might feel bad about it afterwards, but I would probably choose myself. And I think that that is a valid moral choice to say that my life takes precedence over Fluffy's life. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can that I can just you know um, that I can throw Fluffy off of a building because it amuses me, right? Um, uh, or or kill Fluffy to stuff him because uh, it looks nice in my house, right? So uh, so from a moral perspective, the Gaia-centric view isn't, it, uh, I think most of us balk at that kind of view, and I think for good reason. I think that the third view, where I, I would call the Jewish view, although I think that you could plausibly call it the Catholic view, um, given what uh, Pope uh, uh, Francis talked about in his encyclical, and I think it maybe you might be able to call it the uh, Judeo-Christian view, or maybe you could call it the Abrahamic view, because I suspect that uh, that, that Muslim traditions um, see the world in largely these terms too. Uh, it might just be the religious point of view, um, because I think that uh, by and large religious traditions um, uh, see a humanity as uh, the preservation of humanity and human welfare as a, a moral good in and of itself. Uh, that uh, that depending on the circumstance. Uh, uh, is more important than the well-being of the planet of which they're a part. 
Um, but I only know Judaism, so I'm going to say it's the Jewish view for right now, okay? Um, okay, so let's look at the back side of the page. It's page two. And good, we only have seven minutes. Okay, so... <laughs> um, the third one is the Jewish view. I haven't described it yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. So, right. So, I'll, 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 because we only, because we, because we, because we don't have a ton of time, here's what I'll say about the Jewish view, okay? The Jewish view, I, I would describe as stewardship, which means that, uh, um, uh, we are in this kind of squishy middle ground where we have the, uh, the, uh, the moral right to utilize the planet's resources, um, in ways that benefit us. Uh, but also the moral obligation to make sure that the planet remains healthy uh, while we're here and after we're here, okay? So it's stewardship in that way. And there's also another dimension of the Jewish view, which I included here, although maybe we won't get to, which is the responsibility as Jews that we have uh, to, uh, to, the, to ensuring um, uh, a, 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 as just a distribution of resources and as uh, just a, a system of uh, wealth and ownership as we possibly can, uh, can create. Um, okay, so let's just uh, start. Starts in Genesis. God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew word there is kifshuha, conquer it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, so I'll just pause there for a second, right? What that is saying, I think, and what most Jewish scholars think is that this gives humanity the permission to use the earth's resources as we see fit for our benefit, right? So having an iPhone is not necessarily, um, against Judaism, right? Um, being able to eat good food um, and to have be able to go to the grocery store nearby me to get it in, with convenience is not necessarily against Judaism. We can use the earth's resources as we see fit. Um, and we have moral precedence over other species, right? So we are more important. We have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on, upon the earth, right? So given the choice between me and Fluffy, I think Judaism would say you're more important than Fluffy. Now, it's also important to know that dominion over something also entails responsibility for it, right? So it doesn't mean you could just, you know, uh, like Shakespeare said, stride uh, across the narrow world like a colossus, right? You can't just uh, crush everything in your path. You have responsibility for those other living things. But given the choice of, you know, whether, you know, listen, can I destroy this rainforest uh, because I need the medicine that, that's only found in the plants that are there, uh, and it's the only way to cure this uh, illness that's, uh, that, 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 that could otherwise, you know, wipe out a whole human population, right? I think that the tradition could plausibly say human population is more important than the rainforest. However, at the same time, you also have to weigh out this question. In what way is the rainforest also beneficial for uh, human life intact, right? So that's really the, the debate, right? We can't have a limited notion of our self-interest because it's not always quite that simple. And here's what God also says. God says in Genesis, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. In other words, um, we are not the only ones who have permission and have the right to utilize the earth's resources. So when we are thinking about how, uh, how to um, distribute resources, cultivate resources, extract resources in ways that benefit us, we also have to remember that we have a responsibility to the other living creatures on earth, that they need to be able to eat, that they need to have a habitat, that they need to have a home. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a powerful moral argument um, in, when it comes to the preservation of species, not only human species, but other species as well. And so if our uh, consumption impacts the planet in a way that destroys habitats and, cre and, and, and uh, causes extinction among species, uh, that means that the, that is an area for moral concern for Jews. What exactly we should do about it? What are the, 
you know, uh, what are the give and take, gives and takes, that's a matter, I think, of debate. But whether or not it should be an area of concern, I think that Jewish tradition say, says it should be. If you look um, at text 10, it goes into this in a little bit more detail. Uh, this is from the Midrash on uh, that passage. Even those things which you may regard as completely superfluous to the creation of the world, such as fleas, gnats, and flies, even they too are included in the creation of the world, and the Holy Blessed One carries out the divine purpose through every living thing, even through a snake, a scorpion, a gnat, or a frog. In other words, uh, all living creatures, even the ones that we don't really like so much, uh, have a purpose and have a place in the world, uh, and, and, uh, and, and that means... A, it's a positive good that they are in the world, and it's a, therefore, morally problematic to create conditions that wipe them out. What's that? Like, well, you know, listen, so, but that's, a, that's a fair point, right? So, um, we are more important than mosquitoes, right? Um, so, can you uh, treat your house for mosquitoes? Yes. Can you uh, make mosquitoes extinct? No. Right? I think that Judaism would come to, so you're somewhere in the middle ground there, right? Um, all right, look at text number two. This is really, I think, the, the, the uh, commandment for stewardship. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and protect it. To work it and protect it, which means we can extract from the earth the resources we need to better our lives, to survive, but we also have responsibility to protect the planet. Right? And these are the twin responsibilities. Sometimes those responsibilities conflict, but we can't say we only have responsibility to ourselves to better our lives and make our lives better, more convenient, uh, um, nicer. We also have a, a, a simultaneous responsibility to ensure that the world continues to exist, not only for other humans, but for other species. Uh, text 3, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 16 and 18. Some of you may recognize uh, some of this. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Uh, that's a really important one, right? In other words, I, what I take that to mean is um, that, you know, if we are in, say, the United States, consuming uh, uh, things in a way that is harming people halfway around the planet or even close to home, we need to rethink the way that we're consuming things because you may not profit by the blood of your neighbor. You can't better yourself through hurting somebody else. Uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a corollary, that's a, a piece of that same argument, right? You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. Uh, right, so how would we, that's exactly the, the argument that's in that op-ed, I think, right? So, you know, how would we feel if, uh, if we don't get to uh, emit any greenhouse gases uh, but China gets to emit all the greenhouse gases it wants, right? Um, how would that impact us? Um, so that's not a, what we what we are uh, called to create is a is as fair a system as possible where nobody is profiting off off the backs of somebody else. That is not the current makeup of our global dynamic, where our consumption does, in a lot of ways, profit off the backs of somebody else. Um, uh, Correct, and, and, and I hope we do, but here's, here's, what I'll, here's what I'll say. I mean, this is, uh, I think, a, a really good segue into text number four, where it says, there shall be no needy among you in Deuteronomy, uh, which, uh, which means, according to the biblical system of justice, people who have more, and I think therefore nations that have more, uh, um, are, are called upon to care for uh, those individuals and those nations that have less. There should be something approximating 
um, an even distribution of wealth um, within a nation and around the world. Now, that doesn't mean that the Torah endorses socialism or communism, um, but it does mean that we believe in a, that the Torah's vision of a just society includes a, a just distribution of resources, which means that the research and technology and investment to come up with those solutions um, is going to likely have to come from the wealthier nations, uh, including maybe even especially America. So that's the that's the uh, you know um, the the rub of what you're of what you're saying. Didn't, <laughs> and what's interesting about, so what's interesting about the Koch brothers is first of all they're uh you know uh, uh energy producers and that's the line of business they're in um but uh, someone I, I was listening to a actually I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole because I don't want to get too political although I, I would say that um if Jewish values influence your decisions at the ballot box uh, then this may be one of a constellation of things you ought to consider in November. Um, uh, uh, but it may not be. Um, so, um, and I and I don't necessarily and I don't think that I, um, I don't think that uh, that that it's that it's totally a, a partisan divide in the country. I still think. Uh, that in the in the quiet of their offices, they may not be able to say it publicly, but in the quiet of their offices, uh, uh, and some of them are willing to say it publicly, that there are uh, uh, Republicans who um, who are uh, who who are are not in opposition to the science of this issue. They may have, um, uh, and I would also say that there are Democrats who um, who, who take. Um, really unnecessary conclusions uh, based on this. I mean, I, you know, you raised the op-ed in the Times Dispatch about what the governor's proposing to do. I'm not exactly sure the details of it, right? But there are there are Democratic candidates who you know bundle in a whole bunch of you know uh, liberal pet projects and agendas into the uh, into the uh, into saying, okay, these are the solutions to climate change. When maybe they are, maybe they aren't, right? So I'm not necessarily saying that one political party is all good and one is all bad on this issue. Um, it's more complicated than that, I think. Um, okay. Um, so I, I'll just uh, um, uh, conclude with uh, this. You can look at the rest of the uh, text here because I, I know we're, we're out of time. Um, but text number five, I think, is the uh, is is really the core issue, um, which is I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I put before you life and death blessing and curse, choose life that you and your offspring will live, right? It's, it's, it's beautiful. I love, by the way, that it contains uh, nature imagery as the witnesses against you here, um, because I think that that's instructive for our case, which means that, you know, we are, our life is interconnected with the well-being of the planet in some ways, and certainly uh, us and our children shall live, right? So our children's lives are interconnected with the well-being of the planet. So for us to choose life, right, is not only a question of, like, what's going to be good for me right now, although that's a piece of the equation. It's also a question of what's going to create life for, or as much life as possible for everyone around me. Remember, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and also for our children, right? So the Torah, I think, here is saying we need to not have a limited view of our own self-interest. We can uh, work the land to benefit ourselves, but we also have responsibility to protect it. Protecting it is not only about what's good for the planet, although that's nice, but it's also about what's good for us and for our children who come after us. That, I think, is this middle position that, that Judaism offers. You know, not the Gaia-centric view, not the mechanistic view, but a, but a little bit more squishy, more complex middle view that says um, human human life is important, human welfare is important, um, uh, human betterment is a positive good, but it cannot be uh, at the expense of the welfare of the rest of the planet, and it also can't be borne on the backs of, uh, of, of those who have less resources than uh, each of us do. 
Um, I invite you to take a look at the rest of the text on this page. Uh, they're, I think, worthwhile food for thought in that calculus that Judaism invites us to. It's not a, it's not a, a black or white issue in Judaism, um, but I think that what Judaism does invite us to is a, is a sense of uh, greater awareness, sensitivity to, uh, and value of the world of which we're a part and uh, are utilizing that world, but also the impact that we have on it, which we are called to be mindful of.